What's up, everybody? It's Emmett. I'm here with John. Hey, what's up, guys? Uh, welcome to nearing the end of the installments of the Lash series on his book, The True and Only Heaven. Amazingly. Uh, amazingly, yeah. I was <laughs> going through it, and I was just like, wow, like next month's month, we're going to be done. <laughs> yeah, kind of insane. Yeah. So thank you guys for hanging in there. I hope it's been helpful and has aided you in your own thinking about the world we live in. I also just wanted to thank you guys for being patrons and for new patrons. Welcome. We had a surprising influx over the holidays while I was on vacation, even after I messed up the audio error by uploading an episode of Nuclear Barbarians in the Patreon. Sorry for that. If you haven't seen it, the that audio has been fixed so you can just go there and listen to the chapter before this one which is called the syndicalist moment which you should do before listening to this because the syndicalist stuff is something lash is going to come back to and this chapter which is chapter eight work and loyalty in the social thought of the quote-unquote progressive era so this one is a pretty far-ranging chapter it's one of the ones where lash tries to be as synthetic as possible there are were moments where I felt like the thread was being lost, but it, as ever, even when that happened, it's filled with so much context that illuminates uh, received wisdom or ideas that have been around for a long time that it was worth it anyway. Yeah. Yeah. If nothing else, you're just getting a lot of like information. And even if not all of it, we together quite as well for you as it did for the author maybe you're nonetheless still kind of learning a lot that you probably wouldn't learn anywhere else honestly mm -hmm. unless you read what he's reading which if you're listening to a podcast and you're like most of us probably don't have the time yeah <laughs> to do that and whatever else you're doing yeah so it's a kind of invaluable that it's all in this book in that yeah. way nonetheless yeah absolutely like it's definitely the bibliography of this book is like a thing to behold so yeah where we left off we were talking last time about the syndicalist moment and we had a long discussion you and i about uh property as a political problem and that also being related to obviously the geographic boundary of a political community mm -hmm. that's something that gets taken up again here especially towards the end of this chapter, but it's sort of in the background. This chapter opens with a fascinating comparison between the American syndicalist moment and the European syndicalist moment. So if we think back to the syndicalist stuff, their main concern wasn't necessarily poverty. It was more wage slavery. Yeah, slavery, dignity. Right, which is a serious <laughs> uh, political <laughs> so issue. To be divested of your ability to fend for yourself, of course, infringes upon what many, as we've learned, would think, wittingly or not, their Republican values to be. Right. And like in the European context, this was a lot of small freeholders, shop owners, that kind of person. Yeah. And it seems... Like where you get in the very beginning of this chapter is it largely dies in England because England is heavily industrialized. Mm -hmm. um, and thus proletarianized, yeah. Right. So there's not – so if this is the basis of syndicalism, then there really doesn't exist there mm -hmm. anymore. So where you get 
a heavy presence of, of syndicalist-minded people remaining after that point is France and Italy, mm-hmm. and which was interesting to me because it brought together something that I, I don't know that much about the French economy in these times, but I had heard through the grapevine that France kind of tended to do a lot of protectionist policy making around their little farms and shops and so on because totally. those are French things. And I mean, so, to this like, day, you right, know, the, the subsidy protects, for baguettes and stuff. Yeah. Right. The government protects like French culture essentially. And that, I don't know how true that was then, but I, you know, I can see why France was not like developed in the way that England was economically. Like, mm-hmm industrially and so on and then the case for italy being that it simply had just never developed and was kind of impoverished which was sort of the you know just barely had been unified not that long ago and in the run-up to fascism kind of taking place because of a sort of interesting economic situation that they had vis-a-vis the rest of the continent in terms of providing a lot of cheap labor and kind of just languishing yeah exactly so Lash wants to take that tradition, which has a sort of moral conservatism spot welded to it, and contrast that with the American syndicalist tradition. And one of the things that Lash wants to say is that the American syndicalist tradition was always more, let's say, libertine, uh, a little bit less interested in some of those conservative bourgeois family values, and closer to the intellectual avant-garde, and closer to what would end up becoming the culture industry. Right. Your choice is like Duchamp, or like the patriarchal family. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right, exactly. I mean, he does, he goes to great pains to point out how the IWW had a really close relationship with the New York intellectual movement that was incredibly bohemian. Right. If you've ever seen Reds, uh, yeah. the main character, Jack Reed, he's like features in this chapter in just that way as like an IWW agitator. You don't get as much in that film of his being completely i don't know new york open to whatever kind of, like this whole set of people who are like essentially you get a handful of quotes from him from emma goldman who are like the only thing to you know be done is destroy all limits essentially like yeah. no more family no more obligation no more lo- you know like all these sorts of things that would place any limit on you or anything around you need to be utterly destroyed mm-hmm. which i would like to just mail those quotes to to Byung-Chul Han. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Bro, have you seen? (laughs) If you need some more fodder for the next book, here you go. But there is also, so it was interesting was he starts out by talking about how the American syndicalist. So while the European one looks back to essentially a time when like you, at least as the head of the family would have owned stuff and been kind of like, in charge of either making that work or not like that was your survival were things under your control more or less at least some things you weren't dependent on someone else to give you money like you were you were handling your own life and property and that's kind of what the return with a v was supposed to be too in those times for the syndicalists of that period who were trying to fight proletarianization in america 
the look to now lost past is being essentially a cowboy or like just a lone drifter was kind of lying on like the hobo or whatever. Like you, the, these are the kinds of people who are apparently in charge of their own destiny. And it's interesting because to me, these are two different, these are like utterly different. Even if you just want to talk in terms of like material living, like a hobo and like a guy who owns something like totally different, like, yeah, you might be moving around and making money in that way and kind of doing what you want. But like viewing that as freedom seems to me to be quintessentially American in some interesting way. Well, there's a bit huge, huge John Bunyan vibes right? coming off of that. Pilgrim's Progress stuff is like right in the background now. And we're going to get to an interesting discussion of the relationship between the Puritan movement and certain interpretations of it and the cowboy stuff and all of that in a little bit. I think what's important right at this juncture is the relationship between the syndicalists and the intellectuals. I want to read this paragraph, which really stood out to me. And I'm going to explain why after I read it, because a, I see, we think like this is, and this is always when I feel like Lash is doing some like score settling. He's just like, I've been right. I've been writer than you even knew. And I think that's always kind of delightful, but I think this sheds a lot of light and brings up people who've been forgotten in American history, though, who played a very important role. Okay. So he says, The Wobblies, so that's for people who don't know, members of the industrial workers of the world, of which I was once a member, and my godfather is a member. The Wobblies did not object to this assimilation of art and revolution. They too saw themselves as artists. I have lived like an artist and I shall die like an artist, said Joe Hill before his execution and for murder. Bill Haywood, who was the president of the IWW or one of the leaders, I can't remember exactly how they were structured back then, Bill Haywood allowed himself to be lionized by Mabel Dodge and other members of her famous salon. He regarded the Patterson strike pageant of 1913, the fruit of this rapprochement between the IWW and Greenwich Village as the high point of his career. Conceived by Mabel Dodge, the pageant was intended to dramatize the workers' exploitation by capitalism, but it exposed them to a more insidious kind of exploitation by turning radical politics into entertainment. So that's that nice little score settling I was talking about. This is a quote from somebody named Hapgood. Life passed over insensibly into a certain simple form of art, said Hapgood. That is the great thing about it, the almost unprecedented thing. Papers opposed to the IWW gave the pageant enthusiastic reviews. What was condemned as politics would be savored as theater. So earlier before this, he goes into how there is a bourgeois objection to the direct action violence that the IWW is interested in, most famously demonstrated in the Haymarket riot in Chicago. So what they oppose as a type of politics, they revel in as a theater. That's an important transubstantiation that he's pointing out right there. (laughs) Both Haywood and Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, the IWW's most flamboyant orator, had earlier turned down invitations to put themselves on the lecture circuit or stage. In her case, the offer came from no less an impresario than David Belasco, who could see the theatrical possibilities of revolutionary activism as early as John Reed. At the pageant, 
Reed led the Patterson Strikers in a song he had written for the occasion, The Haywood Thrill. Haywood thus resisted the lecture agents only to fall into the clutches of the avant-garde, leaving Flynn to wonder whether the distractions of the pageant had not contributed to the defeat of the strike itself. So why is this uh, important in general? I, first of all, I think the, the radical chic stuff is important to pay attention to the way the intellectual class, because it tends to be an upper set, engages with worker politics. You should always keep a close eye on that. But what's interesting here is some of the stuff that Lash notices after the birth of the new social movements and the new left, 